0: Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to another edition of the Age of Infinite, a Project Moon Hut podcast series where we're looking to establish sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem, then turn those innovations back on Earth, that paradigm shifting back on Earth, to change how we live on Earth for all species. And today we have an amazing guest on the line, Bianca Cefalo, how were you? Cefalo, is that how you say it? Cefalo. It's,
1: uh, it's Cefalo.
0: Yes. Cefalo, Cefalo. I, that's I forgot to ask you. You know, I yeah. think a half my interviews I screw up in this one place, and uh, we have a, an amazing topic today. It's called thermocontrol: the foundation of Dri- thriving on Earth and in space. And Bianca and I met in Macedonia. We were both on stage at an event. We had an amazing time together. We were laughing hysterically, had a lot of fun. Not that the topic was bad and laughable, but we had a, a lot of uh, interaction. And we just hit it off, and I, when I realized what she teaches and knows about i said she that bianca you have to be on the program she works for airbus defense and space in the uk an amazing person and i'm i'm so happy that we finally got you on the line today so thank you for coming
1: Oh, i'm happy to
0: (laughs) okay so i'm assuming that you have an outline a few bullet points of uh what would you what are we going to start with
1: So, I actually have my bullet points, and I have one, two, three, four bullet points. Okay. So, we are starting with, why do we sweat during a very high-intensity physical activity? Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's the first thing. Yep.
1: Then, the second one is, how two bodies, or multiple bodies, exchange heat.
0: Okay.
1: Then the third one is how do we make a spacecraft sweat? Metaphorically, obviously.
0: How do we say that again? How do we what?
1: How, how do we make a spacecraft sweat? Oh, Metaphorically. Make huh. a spacecraft
0: sweat. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh huh.
1: And the very last one is how? What? Well, what about retaining the heat and transforming it into electricity?
0: Okay. Uh, The interesting, uh, whenever I do one of these podcasts, and uh, since the beginning, uh, most of the people that are going to be listening don't know that, I don't know anything that you're going to talk about until you do. So so the fact that you started off with uh, (laughs) <laughs> we sweat out of physical activity. I'm going. Huh? I've got to wonder about this person here. Uh, do, do, do we? What type of rating are we going to have by the time we're done?
1: Well, you know, I think you should expect from me something that was quite special.
0: Yes, I, I did. From our interaction, I expected something kind of interesting. So, so yeah. why do? So let's start with this number one. And I'm, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little bit hot. Uh, (laughs) Well,
1: you know, I'm just setting up the scene, we are talking about thermal, thermal stuff, which could be very hot or very cold, it really depends. uh, So why do I want to start with these first bullet points? Um, Because I want to give to you a very relatable scenario so that we can move from, you know, inwards from our own body to on a bigger scale to what it means talking about thermal control on a way more complex uh, system, which is a spacecraft during the mission. So why do we think we actually sweat when we are having a high intensity activity running heat training? Ener-
0: energy is being, I mean, if going back to my physics and my biology classes, it's, uh-huh. you're, you're breaking down molecules, you're breaking bonds, and those bonds give off a reaction or a thermal reaction. To...
1: Well, actually, it's, it's something that is easier than that. Okay. So, basically, as human beings, our body is meant to work nominally in a range of 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. So anytime this body needs to work within this range of very narrow range of temperatures, regardless the ever-changing conditions of the external environment, and whatever we do 24 seven, either we are sleeping, we are working, it's summer, it's hot, it's cold, we are running, we are shivering, in all the different conditions, our body needs to stay within that range because that's the only temperature that we can actually work with nominally. So when we are um, having a physical exercise, so let's start with a with a hot case scenario and we are running. Cre- clearly, the, our temperatures, body temperature is raising up. So let's say that from 37, we are getting up to 40, 40 degrees. So what happens? Our own body has a very perfectly strategically put inbuilt thermal control system, and this is based on our brain obviously. so um, in our brain there is part of it is called hypothalamus mm-hmm. and this works really like a thermostat. so when our temperatures is changing from thirty seven degrees so it's going either hotter or it's going colder the hypothalamus is detecting this change. Is detecting this change from, for instance, the temperatures of our hands or our feet or our elbows. Uh, that kind of work has temperature sensors. These temperature sensors are transmitting this temperature to the hypothalamus, and then there is a trigger. So the hypothalamus works has a thermostat, meaning that through the uh, nervous system, it's. Um, It's basically triggering what our body needs to do so so that we get back to our normal temperature. So when we are in a high intensity activity and our um, temperature is raising, uh, what is happening? The hypothalamus is detecting the heat. So we are in a situation that is danger, according to our brain. So what it does, it sends a signal to the sweat glands to secrete the sweat onto the surface of the skin. So the sweat itself is not cold, but the fact that he's actually going through our skin and outside our skin is lowering our body temperature so that it goes back to the 37 degrees. That's why when we are doing anything that he's quite straining for our body, we sweat because through our skin, our skin is like our own radiator. And the sweat is actually the heat that is being pushed out so that our temperature is stabilized
0: to 37 degrees. A question for you because I'm I'm pictu- I was trying to make an analogy of for example a home mm-hmm. and there's central there's a central heat which mm-hmm. is the the you might have a central panel if you have forced air mm-hmm. but then you also have homes that have each room has their own temperature gauges and I was trying to create an analogy mm-hmm. in my head to the comparison But it sounds, I don't, does the, I guess the question came to mind is, does our body have, and it does, I could think of it right now, but our body has the ability to do spot-specific heating and cooling. So the brain is spot specific, like it's not gonna try to heat our feet or send blood to our feet. It sends mm-hmm. it to certain places to make sure they're protected. So it's, yeah. I don't even, I can't even think of a, a a system in a home or whatever that really mirrors that.
1: Yeah, it is actually, you got the point. It's very similar to the central heating. So if you actually have central heating with thermostats on your radiators, and you set up that specific temperature that for you it's cold, then when the detectors are detected, for instance, let's say that for you, 12 degrees are cold. So in that moment when the detectors are detecting that temperature, then the thermostat is sending the signals and the radiators are switching on to the temperature that you want. It's very, very similar. So the thermal control of our body, it is actually similar to the central heating of a house.
0: Yeah, but it's an interesting parallel. If you think about it just for one moment, mm-hmm. a home that has centralized forced air that does the whole house at once has one thermostat, more or less, for the whole house because mm-hmm. you can't turn on and off unless you've got valves in each room. Mm-hmm. But the thermostat never does an entire calculation to equalize the whole house. Yeah it that's does it true. by room and by area but mm-hmm. our body has to have an overall uh-huh. temperature which mm-hmm. i don't think we do have that mechanism built in
1: that's true that's true and actually this is something that is going to link up to what i'll be talking about the spacecraft because okay. if you think about our body so everything in our body all our organs they all need to stay at the same temperature so clearly it's Obviously, there are um, there are variations. So it's not like every single spot in our body will be at 37 degrees. That's why there is a range 36.5, 37.5. But what, how it works is that the trigger has to bring us the whole system back to the same equilibrium temperature. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I used to say that uh, as engineers or physicists, what we are just trying to do is mostly to imitate, to simulate something, some some systems that is just perfectly inbuilt in us because we have it and we take for granted that it's happening, that it's working. So when I had the question to you, why do you think we, you, we sweat? You were going to something that was a bit more complex, like molecules and structures. Actually, it was just very, very easy to understand because the temperature was raising at the same time if we are very cold what happens is the vasoconstriction so Weird okay, I, I
0: got. I got to be honest with you. I was yeah. trying to impress you because you have in your title space systems thermal product manager, <laughs> and I was just trying to make a, so maybe I know something more. But actually, yeah, it's because I'm hot. I need to be cooler, or I'm cooler. I need to be hotter. So I, I, I'm. I apologize for trying to be more intelligent, <laughs> and I blew it.
1: This is, this is something that to be honest, we've we all learned through how, I've learned throughout my career as well, because sometimes you, you, you're given a problem, there is, there is a problem that you've never faced before, and you always think that the solution is the most complex one. actually, it's just the easiest the easiest. Sometimes yes. that problem you give it to a child, and because the child as clearly they are, they are very smart, but they don't think at such a higher level of complexity, they are able to solve the problem faster than an engineer does just because yeah. they think that they look at it in an easy way. Yeah. And uh, yeah. this is exactly what happens in, in engineering and with the spacecraft. Um, so the idea of giving the, the, um, the, um, the metaphor for, let's say, the scenario of our body, it's because it's very, it's, it's very relatable and it's something that people don't really think of because it happens. It happens every day, multiple times a day. It's happening even now. Maybe now I'm cold, so my blood vessels are constricting and I'm shivering so that the muscles is actually doing this movement, so that is generating the heat. And also, um, about the goosebumps, do you know why we get goosebumps when we are oh.
0: cold? I my ba- my background is organic chemistry physics calculus I was a biology major and I'm saying to myself I don't remember any of this why do we get goosebumps we get goosebumps uh to I I'm thinking of it now I'm getting complex I'm thinking the body <laughs> is forming wells within the skin and extr- extruding the skin level to give it more exposure so that it can heat up. I don't know. I'm taking a wild guess. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Again, it's very, very easy. So each of the goosebumps that you see has a hair sticking out, right? Yeah. And this is why, this is why the hair, why, and this is also why we have hair, because these hairs that are sticking out of the goosebumps, they are there because they need to trap air. Air is actually one of the most amazing and fantastic insulators that we could possibly have. So when we, have the, when we are cold, the goosebumps and the hair is sticking out so that he's dropping a layer of air around our body. It's like a blanket. It's like wrapping around something that he's making feel us warmer
0: okay so I, I wasn't that far off at giving yeah. us a little well but i wasn't yeah. using the air so i was giving the skin more exposure but okay I, I'll, I'll give myself like a 26 out of 100. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're getting there we will get there at yeah, the end of this yeah I'll be, an, you will
0: know. <laughs> I'll be an expert okay <laughs> so yes so it, it creates an air level and that's interesting because when you're cold, when you're cold, you're normally cold because the exterior is cold to you. But even with that, you form an air blanket around you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is actually, yeah, we look at the hair has the, the external temperature of the hair. But actually, it's a bit like the same of the sweat. So when we are sweating the sweat that comes out through through the, the skin surface is not it's not cold, it's still hot. But it's just dissipating the heat to the but outside. The, well, the,
0: is, and it's all oh it's so it's it's pushing the fluid out which helps to Cause also one which then drops the temperature, but it also does the evaporation yeah, exactly. on the next side. Okay,
1: exactly. And in the other way around, even if the air is cold, however, just sticking this layer, this very thin layer of hair around our arms or our hands or our legs, it gives an equilibrium to our own temperature. So it goes up rather than going down. Although the hair around us isn't really that hot.
0: Okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So any more to do with this sweating? So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving you already. Let me tell you this. <laughs> well,
1: well as, as you may remember, we were talking about sweat. So I got inspired by our com- conversation at the time. And I said, okay, I'm going to start ah, this podcast talking yes. about sweat.
0: Yes. OK, so we're, we're tying Macedonia to UK to a little bit of Italian and American. Yeah, I mm-hmm. get it. Exactly. OK, <laughs>
1: <laughs> So this was the very relatable scenario, meaning that our own body itself has a thermal control system. So the thermal regulation that we have, thanks to the hypothalamus in our brain, is a nimble thermal control system. Okay. and this is something that it's applied on a daily basis on everything in our life in our laptops in our house radiators in our smartphones everywhere so we are again we are using something that we have within us as human beings and just bringing it to life to apply it on our day on our daily basis the same thing when we are using clothes so why we actually use clothes or warmer clothes when it's winter? Because that we are thermal controlling something that obviously our own body alone can't really allow that. So if we are going barefoot in a, in winter and it's snowing and it's minus 12, as much as our body can help us through something, but really we need some more help. Yeah. And this is really what happens then when you transfer this kind of thermal control to a management however you want to talk about it to an engineering system and all of them have one as i said from the the, the, the smaller smartphone to the microwave to the ovens to the house to uh, cars all of them have one so it's really essential it's a part that we couldn't really live without not even our own body group So, that said, moving from the sweat to the heat exchange between bodies. Yeah. This is, um, let's say, a a very short overview of what are the the three main mechanisms of uh, exchanging heat between bodies. So, clearly, there is one that the most, the easiest one to understand is conduction. So, really, the contact between two bodies. When you are holding a cup of tea without the handle, the cup of tea is very hot and maybe your hand is cold. The heat is transferring from the cup of tea to your hand. Yeah, so, and, absolutely. And to keep in mind that the, the movement of the heat is always from the hotter body to the colder one. Not vice yes. versa.
0: Yep. Okay. So
1: this is the conduction. Then we have the convection. The convection actually happens when we are, it's the, uh we were we were talking about the goosebumps so it's really the um uh, uh interaction between the external air so the external flow and a body that could be anything um convection actually is everything that everything that is based about aerodynamics uh is actually to to see how to to, to uh to see how actually the convection works, to, to give colours, to, um, to give an essence to something that is so intangible. Because air is all over the place, when we are on Earth, obviously. It's not the same when we are in the outer space, where there is no air, so there is no convection. And right. again, it's something that we don't realise how the convection works, but every day, when it's cold.
0: Well, we take, it, we take advantage of it because of the existence of mm-hmm. air in our system. Mm-hmm. And that's where, for example, Project Moonhut, and we talk about the paradigm shifting, is you have to learn about a completely new set of rules exactly. when you're in space. Yeah. Okay,
1: and it's exactly that thing. So, again, it's something that we take for granted because this is a heat exchange mechanism that is happening all around us. Uh, just because we don't see it, we think it doesn't exist. Uh, but then, and this is something that actually got me very, very interested at the time of the university in aerodynamics. I loved it. For me, it was really a kind of wizardy how you can see everything that is happening, how you can simulate and test in wind tunnels what is happening around the car, around the aircraft, around anybody. And you can actually see how the flow around the body's going. And you don't realize that this is happening around us all the time. And I was just amazed by all of it. And this is how I actually got into aerothermodynamics and thermal control.
0: It's an interesting point that you've made because when I'm thinking about we've done or seen, meaning I have done or seen, pictures of cars in a wind tunnel. I've seen pictures of uh, aircraft in a wind tunnel, spacecraft, boats. But I don't, uh, I I probably have but I just don't remember seeing aerodynamic wind flow around the human body Mm -hmm. and understanding how that works because our bodies are shaped a certain way and I guess if you're a runner you would see it or if you're a sprinter Mm -hmm. they'd probably do more of those. But to look at it from a thermodynamic perspective It must be interesting, the vortices that are created, the certain areas or pockets which keep warmth and others Mm -hmm. that don't, probably an interesting visual.
1: It is, It is especially if you look at cyclists, for instance, so the professional ones, everything. So they actually make simulations of the athletes on the bike with this very specific clothing, a very specific position. So why do you think that the cyclist is actually curled up on a bike this is because they have to reduce the drag force of the air so they have mm-hmm. to break into the air otherwise they would go slower and yes. this is simulation that is actually done even the, the the helmet that they use it's quite pointy so it's a very sharp edge and this is because of the aerodynamics of the whole flow around the person
0: and and i can see that from that perspective like a ski racer and and all of those but i've never thought about it from just the human body itself in motion standing and sitting from a thermodynamic perspective mm-hmm. not a not a not an aerodynamic but a thermodynamic mm-hmm. and i think that's a huge jump in my head to say okay what is the thermodynamic side of it which mm-hmm. is completely different than i've ever thought of interesting yeah.
1: So yeah, this was another point, and this was about the convection, which is completely out of the picture when we are in the outer space, unless unless we are on a planet like Mars, for instance, that has an atmosphere. And for that, obviously, you need to have aerothermodynamics simulations because you are deploying something that has an atmosphere, which is completely different from the one that we have on Earth and it has different layers and each of the different layers of the atmosphere have different uh, speeds and different temperatures so the whole profile of temperatures and the the boundary layers is completely different from what we would see on earth so it's all completely different simulation Um, so this is about the convection
0: Uh,
1: and then there is the radiation radiation is another one which is kind of underestimated. So everybody that has um, a temperature which is non-zero, non-absolute zero, is radiating energy. So especially, and this is something that is so relatable, when uh, we are all gathering people in a meeting room, uh, there are no radiators, but the more people are coming in, the more the room is getting hotter, because all of us are radiating energy. On an electromagnetic mm-hmm. level. And this is something, again, which is not really seen, uh, but it's happening. It's happening all the time. The table at the moment, where is my laptop, is radiating energy. My laptop itself is radiating energy. The chair where you are sitting on is radiating some energy. All over the place is radiating energy. The Earth radiates energy. The Sun, every planet, spacecraft, radiation is everywhere.
0: So when you when you're talking the, the it's a concept of radiation, not the terminology radiation, because you could say, well, the, when you think about radiation, I, I believe that m- my mind and many minds will also go to, oh, that's bad. But we're really oh, just no. talking about radiation as a concept, that yeah. there's a mo- movement of heat exchange that's happening or heat motion around an object.
1: Exactly. And this is based on wavelengths, really, because there is already in, uh, infrared radiation, uh, radi- visible radiation. For instance, when um, the earth is actually getting hot, it's, it's getting the whole temperature of earth is because it's getting rugged by the sun. So there is a heat flux coming from the sun. And clearly um, it is all about radiation because it couldn't be conduction because the earth isn't touching the Sun. It couldn't be convection because there is nowhere, there is no atmosphere in between the earth and the Sun. So the mm. only way that the earth Listen. is getting hotter is radiation is radiation. He's reduced.
0: Ah. ah, now I get it. Mhm. Okay.
1: Cool. That's cool. Yeah.
0: I, I forget all the things I said about you.
1: <laughs> that you were that you were skeptical about my starting with sweat. <laughs> <laughs> So um, these are really the three main mechanisms of heat exchange and um, again it's something that we take for granted because we don't really think, we, we just see that heat works, we just see that when our hands are cold we put them on the radiator and they get warmer, when our feet are cold and you are with your partner in your bed and you just stick them to the partner and he's like oh my god your feet are so cold. That's conduction. And we just take it for granted.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I am so glad you're saying it, not me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, on a very physical and um, engineering level, that yep. is conduction. So next time that happens to you, you will remember it's conduction. Yes,
0: I <laughs> will now understand exactly what's happening. <laughs> Thank you for that clarity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, now moving from the relatable scenario of our body and heat thermal control to the three mechanisms of heat exchange. So now how do we think that this is all applicable to a spacecraft.
0: Oh, there's, there's, you, you're using all three of them in different ways. You're using the sun or the sun, for example, to make sure that the, or controlling the exterior, which controls the interior. Maybe there's a radio, maybe there's a convection through the walls that you're monitoring. Uh, you're using body exchanges and how much body, and you've got equipment that's giving off heat if it's being turned on. So you're monitoring all of these simultaneously. How how'd I do? Mm. Like, a, like a 31 or 39? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you, you are right there. You are right there. So uh, when I said that my point would be how do we make a spacecraft sweat? That is a metaphor of how actually do we uh, allow, do we guarantee that everything that is inside, inside and outside a spacecraft is working nominally within a certain temperature range during a whole lifetime of a mission, and clearly this really depends on the mission because there could be, for instance, uh, I work specifically now on telecommunication spacecraft. And that's in a geostationary orbit. But there are spacecraft and this an orbit around the Earth. So it's a Earth orbiting system.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, there could be a Leo orbit. So it's a low Earth orbit, which is quicker, for instance, the whole orbit is done around in one hour and a half. On a geostationary level, this will take 24 hours to to complete a full orbit. And again, we are talking just about systems that are orbiting around the Earth. But then there are systems that are interplanetary, where there are interplanetary orbits. So this system is leaving the Earth, it's going through the atmosphere, being launched, and then it has to go to the Moon, to Mars, to uh, Titan's moons, to Jupiter's moons. And clearly, the more complex, the longer is the mission the more demanding and challenging is really the thermal control of the whole system. Also because, uh, as I said, in the outer space, there's no convection, absolutely no convection. So if we are talking about a spacecraft which is orbiting around the Earth, for instance, the telecommunications spacecraft, which has um, a standard lifetime of 15 years mission, you have to guarantee that During these 15 years of this mission, without convection, because there is none, so you are just using conduction and radiation, everything inside these uh, spacecraft, payloads, batteries, structure, solar panels, uh, subsystems, anything that is there, and is working properly for 15 years. And the 15 years, obviously, in 24 hours, you are seeing the, the sun, but you are also seeing the eclipse so it's a it's a very fast shift especially when you are at the transition between this the, the sun let's say the, the the sunny side of the orbit to the eclipse one at the same time you have to make sure that everything is still within their operating temperatures and this is very very challenging it's
0: why i think i think the and, and you can correct me if i'm wrong but approximately the moon on the the far side is at -150 C and on the hot side is 100 C in round numbers i know there's a, yeah. there's a variation but to be able to to be able to sustain living on the moon or in space those those swings are significant mm-hmm. In terms of being able to modulate the thermal control.
1: Yeah, they are they are extremely extremely challenging, and um, as I said, it really depends on what is the kind of mission. So if you're talking about a spacecraft uh, in a geo orbit, so when a spacecraft is orbiting around the Earth, so going back to the mechanism of, uh, um, of heat exchange, so what happens? There is um, the spacecraft is subjected to a direct heat flux from the sun. Then he's subjected to the radiation coming from the earth. But then there is another uh, another um, element to this, which is the albedo. So the albedo is basically the radiation from the sun, which is reflected by the surface of the earth onto the spacecraft. Oh, okay. So these are the three elements ex- from the um, the three external elements that are basically attacking the spacecraft during the orbit. Plus obviously you have all the different payloads and they are using a fairly amount of power each of them and there is an internal dissipation of heat so internally the spacecraft is getting quite hot depending obviously on the mission, so how many of the payloads are switched on, switched off, what is the the, the whole control of the system, it really depends on what the spacecraft is doing. So you have the whole radiation from the outside, solar flux, heart radiation and albedo, plus you have the internal heat that is uh, produced, generated by the whole different subsystems. and you have the challenge of keeping the whole spacecraft and each of the system at a certain temperature. So there are lots of systems that can have this and they are all called thermal solutions and they are all in favor of basically kind of making the spacecraft sweat. And by making the spacecraft sweat, I mean that a spacecraft is uh, you can you can look at it in a, in a very simple design concept way as a, a cube, let's say it's, yeah. it's a cube. It has four walls, mainly. And these four walls, especially in telecommunication spacecraft, they are used as radiator panels. So what happens is that when this the, the subsystem and the payloads we inside the spacecraft are getting very hot, and clearly these This heat can be retained inside the spacecraft because it's um, it could be damaging for any other subsystem, or it's just increasing too much the temperatures of batteries or any other thing, so that they go off their operating temperature. It needs to get out, and how it gets out, it gets out through the radiator panels that, in this case, are actually working as the skin of the spacecraft. So, um, for doing this, uh, for instance, in uh one of the main subsystems for thermal control are the heat pipes. So the heat pipes in this case could actually be seen as blood vessels during the vasodilation of our body. So a heat pipe is um, an aluminium extrusion, it's like a cylinder which has a core, a weak core inside. And everything that is happening in this uh, cylinder is transferring heat from the heat, heat source to the heat sink via capil- capillary effect. So you see this, this long cylinder, which has yeah. a, a weak inside. And there is a fluid, a working fluid. Generally, it's ammonia. It could be water. Uh, it really, again, depends on the mission and what are the temperatures that you want to achieve generally it's ammonia. So what happens is that when this heat pipe, for example, is connected to one of the payloads, the payload is switched on, is doing the whole work that is required to do during the mission. It's getting really, really hot. So you get a hot spot on that point of the spacecraft that you really don't want. So this activates the fluid at the hot source of the heat pipe. So the heat pipe has a kind of blood vessel is just transferring this hot spot from that hot source to the, the, to, the, to the heat sink, and the heat sink is generally the radiator. So the radiator panel gets these parts, so get, gets gets the, the heat from the heat hotspot to the heat sink and is radiating to the, out, the outer space. And this is the way the heat is rejected from the inside of the spacecraft to the outside um this is a very simplified way of talking about for instance the heat pipes uh because there are if if we look at it uh like blood vessels so the whole the the whole panels the whole radiators of the spacecraft have plenty hundreds of heat pipes that are embedded within the honeycomb of the panel which are yep. surface heat pipes, linking heat pipes that are sticking out of payloads and going to another point. Um, it's a very, very complex system which can really be related to our body blood vessels, hypothalamus, which is the thermostat, uh, nervous system that is actually detecting the, the temperature sensors. This is exactly what is happening on a
0: spacecraft, just on a more complex level. So, uh, two points. Hmm. Number one, because just time-wise, I don't want to take too much time on this. The first one is that it sounds like the assumption is that heat is is being generated and if we have to constantly be working on the cooling mechanism more than we are working on the heating mechanism, Um, this... Mm. Because you, you, you took it from the position yeah. of heat versus cold, yeah. saying that we're trying to dissipate, we're trying to sweat. Yeah. And then the second is that I've been to the Smithsonian in the United States for air and space. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole series of spacecraft that have been placed uh, for human inhabitants. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I did not see... As much of this type of technology existing, if we went back to 1960s, 1970s, 80s, not as much as you do in the current time, mm-hmm. how did we compensate on a short answer, just because I want to make sure you have time for the rest? Yeah.
1: So, uh, for the first point, it is true I was concentrating more on the heat side of the thing, but uh, we actually have heaters. So, we are also talking about heating up locations of the space. Oh,
0: okay. So internally, there are heaters yeah. just in case you yeah. need to turn it on. We okay. have
1: those ones as well, as much as we have MLI blankets, which are really like a coat around the spacecraft, so that it's insulating the spacecraft or part of the subsystems. Um, then the second point, uh, the second point is as um, about this this technology. Uh, There are plenty of technologies which are a lot based on um, maybe the heat parts are very specific to some some, some missions. Uh, They are generally everywhere. Uh, On a more generic level, they are called heat exchangers. We even have them in our smartphone, in our laptop, everywhere on a smaller scale, really. And um, what is also used a lot? Uh, So I was talking about conduction. So what really happens with the heat pipes is about conduction because there is a direct contact with the surface. But then we have uh, coating like paints, Because when we talk about radiation, what really happens is about the infrared radiation and the visible radiation. So what we need to play is about the thermo-optical properties of what is outside the spacecraft. That's why some parts of a spacecraft are generally black, some others are white, some other Uh, are even gold.
0: Okay. Yes, and I've seen all of them as a means of modulating or managing heat.
1: Yeah, exactly. All of them. Uh, So
0: it's it's not a fashion statement? Sorry? It's not a fashion statement?
1: Well, it could be. (laughs) <laughs> well, it could be that they just. Want if, the- if
0: you were, if you were in charge, it would be.
1: Well, to be honest, I'm really happy about the black and the gold because that's really <laughs> part of my fashion. So.
0: Yes, that's why I said it.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think I just wanted to be an aerospace engineer to to to, to dress be, to
0: be around black and gold
1: exactly, yeah. and to dress up like a spacecraft.
0: So so what about this then that what about re- retaining heat and so uh...
1: now we go to the last point and this is really essential when we talk about habitats and really thriving for living or for using energy or reusing energy in an environment that is clearly not ours on earth so when i was in berlin i started working on this project which is called mess Now I'm going to tell you about this acronym. So MES means Moon Energy Storage Generation. What we were doing at the time was actually coming up with a concept design to use all these different thermal control systems and retain the thermal energy within the regolith of the moon. So using exactly resources that are on the moon. and By retaining this energy, this could be then transformed into electricity to a user that could have been a rover it could have been uh, a crude habitat anything really that was staying on the moon Um, so why the thermal control now and the transformation of it is so essential to really understand as a concept is because it's really the one that can give us permission with in a very cost-effective and in a very lightweight fashion to have an habitat and using something on another planet by just taking advantage of the resources that we have and of clearly of the eclipses and the Sun and the radiation and the conduction so it is really really important to understand this principle so what happens with these regularly for instance what can be done is that you can have uh, let's say um, solar collector this is the concept that we came up it's actually public Um, it's a project that we've done with the european space agency um you can have the the concept is about having a solar collector which is a mixture of uh mirrors and lenses so that you can retain you can get as much as um, as as much as you can really from the solar flux during the, the the daylight of the moon then there is a heat transport uh, from the solar collector to the thermal mass. So this heat transport, is, uh, it could be some of these heat parts, as I was saying, so really it's a passive heat transport that doesn't have any mechanical or bearings or anything that during a lifetime can just get broken and not work anymore. You're collecting the heat flux with lenses transporting it with a passive system to the thermal mass, which is the regolith, the soil of the Moon. Then from the soil of the Moon, where you are retaining the heat, there is another heat transport to a heat engine. And this heat engine is actually the one that is transforming the thermal energy from the thermal mass into electricity and then this electricity by another heat transport mean so the heat engine is is giving the electricity to one of the users and then the waste energy of this heat engine is used again into another thermal mass to be kind of recycled let's say to be rejected to a radiator
0: so you're actually using the the regolith the the sand if we want to call it that of the moon mm-hmm. as a storage mm-hmm. device exactly okay. yeah okay yeah so it's 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 I, I go to a what do you call it a, not a spa but a when you get a heat when you when you go into a room where it's really hot, mm-hmm. is that you put it into the stone, and then the stone radiates it to the room? Mm-hmm. What do they call them? Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the room. So you're you're that's an interesting direction. You're using the actual planet to be, or the 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 moon to be able to then retransfer it to usable energy.
1: Exactly. So we are really just using resources that are on the place. We Well, this whole project actually started to to really understand if there was a viability for a concept to be able to take advantage of anything that we have on that planet. Because if you think about how can we give uh, energy or electricity power to a user, especially during the night time, and the night time on the moon is much longer than the night time on Earth. Um, If we need to bring from Earth all the things that we would have here, It's the missions
0: can be heavy. It would be be expensive and you can do it. You you have to, you have to re, you have to reimagine the possibilities of using existing materials. Yes. And uh, by using the moon and the regolith, what you've done is you've said, here is something we don't have to bring. We don't have to, there's no payload that has to go. And it could be encompassing the entire moon. So if we had a area where humans lived you can facilitate anywhere a new sort of heat exchange
1: yeah yeah
0: or electricity generation
1: yeah yeah exactly and um again this is this is a concept that actually showed some some very good result because then there was the whole um testing so what i stopped at the analysis phase because then i left the company and moved on to another one but my my colleagues actually finished the project and uh, they went through the testing they test this concept on a smaller scale demonstrator using a very relatable regolith that was produced by um, an institute in Germany in Berlin, Fraunhofer Institute, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they've actually shown that there are possibilities that actually this concept of using the collect the solar collector, the heat transport, the, 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 the retaining the thermal mass, and then Uh, shuffling in into a heat engine and powering up a user was actually working. So uh, it was really working. So clearly it's showing a major potential for viability of a project, viability of adding actually a crew, um, a manned or unmanned crew on the moon and using the regolith to store the heat and uh, using it as um, an electricity generator without bringing any extra and any extra efforts from the earth, any extra material, just using the, 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 overall cycle of daylight and night on the moon and the resources that are on that planet. Oh, well, in this case, the moon, and this could be, this could be done on any other planet, exoplanet, any place where we could actually move.
0: My my mind goes to project moon hut and i yeah. say okay <laughs> why aren't we do why aren't we as efficiently doing that on earth the same conceptual I mean, we're, we're using solar panels and mm-hmm. i heard something and i don't know how true it is that in 30 years we're going to have so many degraded solar panels that we still haven't figured out what we're going to do with the The chemicals that are embedded Mm -hmm. in them and uh, some people say they're going to be shipped off to third world countries. People are going to try to destroy them. But we don't have solutions today just like we don't have for the Apple ear pods that have a little bit of chemicals in them and they're being tossed out at a a very large rate. And uh, even these solar panels that people will take them off their roof or in their places and they'll just put them in their backyard because they don't want to pay for getting rid of them. Uh, there's got to be better ways to be able to capture on Earth, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely there are. Also, because if you think about uh, all the the systems, let's say, that were um, identified for this kind of concept, like, for instance, um, I have it here, I've written it down, so it's the thermoelectric generator. And this system is something that is used on Earth on power plants, it's generally used on power plants, in automotive aircraft. is is something that we have already. We, we, we're we using it for any other um, energy generation. Uh, but clearly, the, the whole concept of reinventing the way in which we are using the heat, we are storing it somewhere, and then we are getting power out of it, uh, takes a major redesigning of any architecture that we have on Earth. And this could be exactly a byproduct of a viable project on space. And then if it's actually a demonstrator and then you go to a model that is definitely working, it could be something that we could definitely use if we use on Earth.
0: It's, I'm, pictures are flying through my head and I think of the matrix where the human body was used as a battery in the in the movie <laughs> and how this can be transformed yes the proof of concept is space-based thinking mm-hmm. finding new ways to approach a challenge of thermodynamics i i I've, i have to start looking at the world a little bit in the, in color like w- meaning i don't look at a wall as giving off heat or absorbing heat or i don't see it that way and i i wonder how often you do that you see the world in a way where you're looking at it from a thermodynamic way, mm. which I just have never really spent my time thinking about, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it is, and uh, uh, it is def- that's why I'm, I'm so glad that we are talking about this because especially thermal engineering, thermal control, thermal management, it's something that, to be honest, when I started working on it, it was a very niche uh, category of the engineering, especially in space engineering. But actually, now it's because also the missions are becoming so demanding, payloads are becoming more and more powerful, we need more power, but the spacecraft needs to be smaller, so there isn't much radiating skin so that we can dissipate the heat and then we want everything that is cost effective that is uh, faster that is smarter so the whole business model the whole industry is shifting towards something that is let's say more powerful but cheaper and uh, lighter and here now everyone is actually coming to the point where thermal control is becoming pivotal is becoming one of the main subsystems because so far we realized okay it's there because we clearly need to have batteries working at such and such temperature but because we had lots of space and panels for we were so big fine we can just... but
0: we're now talking we're now talking about human inhabitation in, in yeah. places and without without smart thermal transfer understanding yeah uh, we would not be able to manage that. And, and at the same time on Earth, mm-hmm. we're seeing, for example, in Australia, 45 degree temperatures and that's Celsius, 45 degree temperatures and we're, we're, have, we're seeing the implications of uh, a whether you believe in climate change or where it mm-hmm. came from or not. we're still seeing climate change changes. Yeah and that Australia has the challenge of how do you keep animals alive, humans alive? How do you make sure that fauna uh, is, survives with large fluctuations mm-hmm. in, in temperature?
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is it's really it's having an impact on, our, on, on every scale on Earth. Because, okay, talking or not about climate change, but clearly something is happening. And for instance, we, we have seen what's have, what happened in Venice, for example, which is closer to me because I'm Italian. So everything that is happening there, floods. Uh, but also when I speak to my parents, they are actually telling me, well, yeah, the weather is really weird. We've, we're getting some kind of small tornadoes. We are getting something that is completely, completely unexpected. And the housing, the whole architecture of a town Isn't prepared for this because clearly we have been used to have, for instance, I don't know, in the UK or Germany, houses that are made for uh, the cold weather, but in Italy or any other country which is warmer, they are not prepared for that and vice versa. Yes, and this
0: where we're seeing the yes, yeah, it's 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 a big it's. And we're talking about it from a human perspective, but when you add in, remember the Project Moonhut is for all species on Earth, uh, animal species are not designed to be able to compensate yeah. in the same way either. Mm-hmm. There's a, that's where you've got heat exhaustion that comes from humans or they come from animals too. So th- this is interesting. I hadn't thought about it in this way. That uh, and, and I never, never, never expected you to go in the direction that you did. Thank you. Uh, it, it, well, no, it's, it's fantastic. It was very simple for me to understand. The, how, many, how many people in the industry in, in this field are there in the world?
1: Oh, in the world. Oh, well, that's yeah. a silly question. I'm sure there are hundreds of them. Sure.
0: Okay. But But it's 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 a growing.
1: The fun thing is that every time I go to some convention or conferences, especially at the European Space Agency, or when it's in the states, and uh, uh, I see always the same people, the same people from the European Space Agency, from my company, from NASA, from JPL. We are all the same. It's a very small community. As much as. Space is seen like expanding everywhere and having branches in any kind of engineering or any kind of aspects of our life. Actually, the people that are working on that it's a very small community.
0: Well, and that's where the tech that we're working on the platform will be able to expose your type of your type of uh, knowledge base to a larger group of individuals, so that they don't make the mistakes that might stop a mission or a technology from surviving in space it's it's much more complicated it's almost i'm thinking about smart systems Mm -hmm. that are capable of being able to monitor entire vessel or uh, or habitats uh, simultaneously to make sure that nothing blows a gasket Mm -hmm. if you want to call it that Nothing exceeds the limitations that the human body or plants and animals would need to be able to thrive and survive mm-hmm. in space. and therefore the same thing on earth.
1: Yeah yeah. And uh, it's um, again, I'm happy that we can bring awareness about this kind of concept because again, it's something that is taken for granted for our own selves on earth. We've been using it for ages since we were born since you know everything started. But clearly, we don't look at it like it's something that we could miss.
0: Uh, no, we use it, but we don't. Uh, for the for normal, we're not thinking about it. We use it. We we know we put on a, a turtleneck, mm-hmm. or we know we put on a jacket. But when you have to design it. Using basically only a few parameters, mm-hmm. whether it's radiation, it's convection, conduction, and then you say which one do you throttle back, which one do you push mm-hmm. forward, which one do you do you enhance uh, to make each one work so that it becomes an equilibrium. Yeah. That's not an easy. That's not an easy formula. No,
1: no. That's why I always thought about it really like kind of magic, because I've clearly made it uh, made it sound. Simpler, because if 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 I'm going to go into the details of everything, we'll be here for the rest of our life. Um, but there are so many subtleties, so many um, solutions, uh, and also new solutions of integrated systems. Because again, as everything is uh, miniaturizing, so we are going from small to, to big platforms to getting them smaller and smaller and smaller. is something that happens also with, with the laptops, for instance. So we started with computers that were huge and now we have laptops that are extremely powerful and extremely light and absolutely extremely expensive. And why they are expensive? Because miniaturization is really hard when you have to make everything work in a very light and very small scale.
0: Well, Bianca, this was amazing. <laughs> this is a nice introduction to a, a place that I have not really spent any time thinking about. So I want to thank you for for taking the time to put together this very interesting uh, flow mm-hmm. for us. So I, that's amazing. So thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you for giving me and the chance. <laughs>
0: Oh, my, my pleasure. And I want to thank you for everybody for taking the time for listening in. I hope that you learned something today that made a difference in your life and the lives of others and will hopefully help us move Project Moon Hut forward f- faster. And the Age of Infinite, this series, we're looking to, again, once once again, create sustainable life on the moon. Uh, we want to get there faster so that we can find new technologies that will impact and alter how we live on earth to improve it because most people will not be living in space. We have 7.5 billion people. And even if we put a million people up there, we'll still have challenges with climate change, mass extinction, social displacement. Uh, we have resource depletion, political unrest that will come from all the things that we're doing. So this was very, very informative. Again, thank you, Bianca. Is is there a way that uh, someone wanted to contact you? What would you want to give or if you're interested Um, in giving? Yes,
1: so um, I'm contactable on LinkedIn. It's really the easiest way for everyone to contact me, to send uh, request of connection. They can go through everything I've done. They could probably pick up something that they like or something that maybe they are interested in and they want to have any questions. It's all up there. So my name on LinkedIn is the best way to contact me.
0: Okay, it's spelled Bianca, B-I-A-N-C-A-C-E-F-A-L-O. Yeah. And for on our side for Project Moon Hut, I'd love to connect with all of you. We've got volunteers helping us around the world and we would love to hear from you. You can reach me at David at projectmoonhut.org, uh, Instagram at mister David Goldsmith. You can connect with me at Twitter or us at Twitter at, at Project Moon Hut, or for me particularly is at Goldsmith. And then there's LinkedIn and Facebook and all the other means. So uh, I really appreciate that anybody's listening in. I hope you were able to get the value. So, to everybody, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.